0: If you say, why can't I stop eating? Then your brain's going to find evidence that you can't stop eating. Before you know it, you're going to feel like someone who's powerless to stop eating. So we tell people to collect evidence of success instead.
1: Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren,
2: functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life.
1: Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities, because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, and happy new year, everyone. Welcome to episode 226 of the Biohacker Babes. We are kicking it off on January 1st. This is season 10 of the podcast. My name is Renee. I'll be your co-host. And I have my sister Lauren here. Hi, Laura. Hello.
2: Happy New Year. Tuning in from New York City. New Year, New You. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Got it going.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited about this topic today. We've been saving this for this date because we think it's such an important topic as we kick off the new year with our New Year's resolutions. We have Dr. Glenn Livingston coming on. He is a veteran psychologist and doing really amazing work with helping people discover what's going on with overeating, stress eating, binge eating. Like, how can we overcome this, and how to banish these food cravings and our inner food monster, as he says. So, I think there's a lot of really great, tangible tips for you all today. So, you know, looking at your New Year's resolutions, your health goals, how can we make these stick for the year? And I think he's going to give you a lot of great tips to make that happen.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated learning kind of the primal kind of reptilian brain instincts that drive a lot of this. As functional practitioners, you know, we talk about gut health and managing blood sugar and eating real food and circadian rhythm. But there's this whole other psychological perspective I think is really important to understand. And he really kind of um, broke down some of these strategies that we are employing incorrectly such as the progress over perfection. And and he explains how we really need to kind of like reverse a lot of these strategies in a lot of ways. So he gives some really tangible advice and he has amazing resources. If you go to his website, Petecravings.com where you can understand how this program works a little bit better. And if this is something that you really struggle with, please check him
1: out. Yeah. And you can get his book for free online. So definitely do a deep dive if you feel like this is calling to you. So, Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multimillion-dollar consulting firm that has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. His work, theories, and research have been published in major publications, including the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Chicago Sun-Times. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most importantly, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. I think his story and passion just it really, really shines in this episode. And I'm really grateful that he is sharing all of his wisdom with the world and with you all today. All right, let's, let's jump, jump in. in. Welcome, Dr. Livingston, to the Biohacker Babe. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me here. Please call me Glenn.
1: Glenn, yes. Thank you, Glenn, for being here. Uh, we were just saying we're so excited that this episode is going to come out January 1st. So happy new year to everyone that's listening. Uh, I think this is just such a perfect topic to kick off the new year. We know that you know New Year's resolutions are in full effect at the moment. And our goal with the podcast is how do we help people carry these resolutions through Potentially all year, right? We don't want them to be giving up on these healthy habits end of January, mid February, which typically happens. So, the mindset and human behavior around eating is such a fascinating topic to me because so many people, including myself, we know mostly what we should be eating. Maybe some people are, you know, still drinking oat milk or you know eating fake meat, something like that. But how do they make the changes? So, I think to kick us off, uh, why don't you share why like overeating? Stress eating, why is that so prevalent in today's world?
0: Well, for, for a number of reasons. Um, and by the way, I spent some time consulting for the big food industry. I, w- I was on the wrong side of the war and I saw all of the hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and excitotoxins and salt and and chemicals which can turn off your ability to know when you're full. Um, and, I, and I saw the millions of dollars that were going into the packaging that would make you think that there are a diversity of micronutrients in there. So your reptilian brain craves it. And it's all designed to do this without giving us the nutrition to feel satisfied. and And so when you put that all together and the fact that willpower is... Worn down by decision making, and we're more overwhelmed than ever. We've got more decisions to make than ever over the course of the day. what we'll, will perish just the ability to make good decisions, and there are only so many you can make over the course of a day. Um, and you put that all together, and you know the fact that you can walk out of a convenience store and see another one across the street and get hundreds of thousands, cal- hundreds of thousands of calories for very little money at all. Um, it's a wonder that anybody can eat well it's a wonder that anybody can eat well in today's society. So um, yeah, it's a perfect storm, unfortunately, but that, but there are ways to opt out of that and there are ways to control yourself anyway.
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. Talk the about food that. industry is definitely against us in so many ways. So how do we yeah. begin to look at this? Like maybe we can start by defining stress eating versus emotional eating. Are there larger categories that we just need a better understanding of first? Well,
0: yeah, you know, I I wrote an article for Psychology Today about this because usually what people first ask is how do I find, how do I know if I had a, have a problem, and if you were to go by the DSM five criteria for binge eating, it only represents about between two and four percent of the population depending upon what study you look at, but forty percent of the population is obese. So in some ways, I think that's the wrong question. The the right question is, do I eat? beyond my own best judgment and if there were a way to eat within my own best judgment without taking pills or having surgeries or having to spend you know tens of thousands of dollars on therapy or anything like that, should, should I look into that? And I think that's um, I think that's the more important question. With regards to stress eating or emotional eating, it it's true that the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions when the digestive system is overloaded with food. And so there's a kind of analgesic effect on the emotions when we go to quote-unquote comfort foods. But it's also true that that's not the whole story. So people think that the relationship is, I feel stressed, I feel some emotion that I don't want to feel, anxious, sad, angry, whatever, even joyful sometimes. And then it goes to this overeating episode. But the truth is that it actually goes both ways and there are intervening variables where you can sever the link between the emotional upset the same way that you would sever the link between a roaring fire in a fireplace and your living room. And if you have a really good fireplace, you don't necessarily have to put out the fire. You just need to be sure that the ashes don't get out and burn down the house. That That's important because the prevailing notion in the culture – um, there are a couple of pieces to this question. It's probably the hardest question to answer from right at the beginning. <laughs> um, there are a couple of pieces to the puzzle, but but the prevailing notion in the culture is that in order to stop emotionally overeating, you really have to cure your emotions. You got to figure out, you know, what's what's eating you, so you don't keep on eating stuff. Fill the hole in your heart, so that you don't keep trying to fill the hole in your stomach. Mm-hmm. That that's a harder task that could take many years, right? But figuring out how to build that fireplace, and I'll get more into that in a minute, is much better. I just want to finish the answer to this question. The other piece of the emotional eating equation is that emotions are physiological experiences with a label on them, right? For example, anxiety and excitement have essentially the same physiological um, components. You, your blood pressure goes up a little bit. Your, you know, galvanic spin, skin response goes up. You perspire a little bit. You breathe heavier. And it depends what cognitive label you put on that, whether you experience that as anxiety or excitement. So knowing that emotions have this physiological component, we can actually measure them and see what happens when we give you a food reward. These are mostly done with animal studies, not really with people. But it turns out, for example, that animals which manifest the components of anxiety and are then given a sugar reward will teach themselves to manifest those components of anxiety more often uh, baboons who have high blood pressure if they're given some sugar every time they manifest high blood pressure as a group they will have the, the blood pressure goes down a little bit when they get the sugar but on the whole their blood pressure goes up um, overall so what the clue there is that's called operant conditioning That Behaviors and physiological states that are preceded by a reward tend to repeat themselves. What what that tells us about emotions is that if you feel really anxious and you feel like you can't get to sleep without a big plate of pasta or a chocolate bar or something, then it might be that the pasta and the chocolate – is making you anxious in the first place you're teaching your body that the way to get all those calories and our, our bodies are calorie acquisition machines and it's going to remember how it got those calories you're teaching your body that the way to do that is to manifest this anxiety and so a lot of people um, it's scary for them and i you know if they have a real anxiety problem i tell them they have to do this with a, a doctor's supervision um, but for three or four days if, if you say okay, I can't sleep, then I won't sleep. Whatever I have to do, not to have the pasta or the chocolate or whatever it is you're eating to go to bed. um, I'll do whatever I have to do. I want to burn this out of my system. Then your brain starts to go through an extinction curve and it doesn't produce as much anxiety um, because you're not rewarding the anxiety all the time. Mm -hmm. So the takeaways are that um, emotional eating is not the whole story. It's a part of the story. You can remember that by thinking, well, if I was just eating to numb out, then my dentist would probably say to me, "I'm I'm out of Novocaine. How about I inject you with a chocolate bar?" Right? Um, <laughs> we're we we're, do- we're eating it for some other reasons, so we're not just. It's not just emotions causing the overeating. It's um, it's not having an intervening variable between the emotion and the overeating. I left that part out, didn't I? Yes, I did. Okay, let's say that I'm some
1: complicated topic. It really is.
0: I I discovered personally and I I used to be almost 300 pounds and I had a real serious problem when I was younger and I discovered personally that the emotion that would trigger that was a little loneliness or depression or, you know, I was in a bad marriage and, um, and I would rent the chocolate and then I would rent a pizza after that. And, um, so I know that my emotional cycle was feeling lonely or depressed or a little brokenhearted. Right. Um, and so everybody feel bad for Glenn and give Glenn a hug now, but, 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 um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but there was this voice of justification inside of me that would say, you know what, you're right, and the reason you feel like this is because your mama didn't love you enough or you are in a bad marriage, and until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to just keep doing this. There's this voice of justification that made it comfortable to have all the chocolate and pizza to try to get away from those emotions, um, and then the chocolate and pizza would reinforce those emotions, and you get kind of caught in this in this trap. So you want to disempower those emotions. So, so for example, maybe that, you know, that inner food monster would give me a justification saying, you know what, Glenn, you really need this now. Um, it's the only way that you're going to feel better. And I can make a list of 10 different things that I could do to feel better, like getting outside on the beach for 20 minutes or looking at some old silly movies like blazing saddles or the man with two brains or something like that, or looking at pictures of my niece and nephew when they were young or my old hiking pictures, or call, there are a million things you could do. I could refute that and disempower that excuse. It makes it more uncomfortable to, to indulge. So that's my answer to um, mm-hmm. understanding emotional leading and how you go about beginning to yeah. to interfere so, with it. Yeah.
2: So many branches yeah. and, and ways we could go with that, but I'm just, just so curious. You mentioned, kind of doing like a four-day starvation under a physician's supervision? Is there like a half-life on these emotions? Like if we don't empower them for four days, they become less powerful? Can we actually kind of dampen mm-hmm. their their power, essentially?
0: Mm-hmm. There is a There is a half-life on most behaviors and autonomic responses that have been conditioned. It's called an extinction curve in the behavioral literature, and it doesn't go straight down. For example, um, I don't usually talk about this with regards to anxiety, but let's do that. Some people would think that if I stop eat, overeating at night, then in response to my anxiety, that the first night's going to be the hardest, then it's a little easier, then it's a little easier, then it's a little easier. That's not actually what happens. What happens with most behaviors that have been rewarded by food is the cravings. You get a little bit of a honeymoon period right away. You say, oh, well, Glenn, it." You know, I didn't expect this. I'm doing so much better. And then a couple of days later, there's a big spike. I'll, I want to explain this with regards to food in a, in a little bit. But then if you push through that spike, this is called an extinction burst. If you push through that spike, probably somewhere in the four to seven-day range, um, then it starts to go down and down and down and down. That's called an extinction curve. It's very important for overcoming cravings in general. Because most people, when they get to the extinction burst, think that there's something wrong. They think that they must be doing something wrong and they're going to be tortured forever and they're never going to be able to to power through. And so they give up. And then they reinforce the cravings at random again. I want to set the groundwork for understanding what causes cravings and why they aren't a sign of a diseased mind or a problem. If you have stronger cravings than other people, you actually have a healthier brain than other people, not a worse brain than other people. This is counterintuitive in our culture with the messages that we're given. Mm -hmm. 100,000 years ago, if we didn't develop cravings, we would have starved. So if we had to be very motivated to identify food signals, the availability of food, and then to do what was necessary, people feel very motivated to go and get the food. So let's think about a caveman. I like to call him Thag, T-H-A-G. And 100,000 years ago, Thag is out scavenging for, you know, fruit and bananas and, and he comes across a monkey and he happens to follow the monkey to a banana tree. And Thag's brain gets very excited thereafter when he sees monkeys, he says, monkeys equal bananas. So his brain secretes a whole bunch of dopamine when it sees the monkey and gets him to follow the monkey to a banana tree. And then that behavior is then rewarded. So, Thad gets banana cravings when he sees monkeys. Well, you could understand the monkey as a food stimulus. And in our modern culture, you're passing the donut store, and you know that there's coffee and donuts available. There are coffee and donuts available in the donut store. And, um, you get very excited before you even get there. You feel happy before you even get there that you're on the way to the donut store. Um, this is like Thag following the monkey into the, into get the banana tree, right? Okay. So now let's assume that you're stopping at this donut store every day on the way, on the way home from work and getting coffee and a donut and you're developing a little punch and you decide you're going to stop. So. You create a rule for yourself that says, I will never stop at the donut store on the way home. Over the course of the 30 days, there will be three, four days, and you'll have a big spike, that extinction burst, which I call the worthy F for my donuts. Um, that's, that's the little burst. And then it goes down. There are a couple of little cravings at the end, and, and then you're done with it. About 30 days later, if this was a daily habit, 30 exposures later, you're not going to crave donuts and coffee as you pass the donut store. Two months later, you'll wonder where it was ever a problem. So, why do we get that spike? What's the evolutionary purpose of that spike? Let's go back to Thag again. Thag follows monkeys to trees, finds bananas, gorges himself in bananas, takes them back for his family. It's a survival advantage. Gets more excited and more excited every time he sees a monkey, feels almost compelled. The, The brain automates this behavior, it makes it more efficient. He gets better, at following monkeys, it takes him less effort. Um, he thinks about it less. It's just something that he kind of does because the brain wants to spend as little energy as possible to get as many calories as possible. Because back then that was necessary to survive. Now the season wears on and Thag follows a monkey and he winds up in an empty banana tree. Other monkeys have gotten the bananas. Maybe he's eaten some of them. There's no, there are no bananas. Does Thag's brain immediately give up on craving bananas when he sees monkeys? The answer is absolutely mm-hmm. no. <laughs> absolutely not. Because having a food signal that leads to food some of the time is better than having no food signal at all. It saves effort and energy, um, which you'd have to go to try to figure out how to acquire food elsewise. As a matter of fact, what Thag's brain does is double down on the craving. He'll get even more excited when he sees the monkeys because the fag's brain now believes that the reward is available at random and it's testing it out because it doesn't want to give up on something that's become available at random in the behavioral research. This is the most reinforcing behavior schedule. This is the most re- reinforcing reward schedule. Random variable reinforcement uh, is most motivating to the brain. This is the reason that you see little old ladies at the casino sitting and pulling at the at the slot machine over and over and over again, right? Because they gotta be there when it comes out, you know? Gotta yes. put all my right.
2: Yeah. I was just gonna it, say it sounds like banana roulette. I'm like, I can see people just keep keep playing. Yeah. yeah. I mean Exciting. I live in
1: I live in Las Vegas. So I witness that a lot. And I'm just like, man, just the dopamine hit of the slot machine one after another, rolling the Stability, yeah. Right. So yeah.
0: This brings us to a very practical insight. What do you think would happen if the slot machine only ever paid off on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock? Would you see the little old ladies there during the week? They'd stop oh, going, yeah. right? Because there's no mm-hmm. point. They they would learn that it was only available at this particular time. So the really practical insight from that is, first of all, reinforcing your cravings at random is the worst thing you could do. When, it, when you get to the, you know, the extinction burst or the where the F is my donut point, and your your inner food monster says, you know, you're going to be tortured forever. This isn't working. The worst, very worst thing you could do is just reinforce it and give in. But you also know that if you don't want to give up donuts, you should contextualize it to a very specific set of conditions. So maybe I only ever have donuts on Saturdays after my workouts and I only have two of them. If you do that long enough, your brain will be like the little old ladies pulling a slot machine during the week that only pays off on Saturdays. It will stop generating the craving during the week. It takes longer when you're doing it. Um, we call this a conditional rule when you're trying to extinguish something conditionally rather than totally. But there is a half-life and you'll get to the point where you'll you'll comfortably only have the donuts during the week. There's one more piece of this cravings puzzle that's really important to know. Let's say... You go through, let's say you decide you're not going to stop for donuts on the way home from work um, and you don't have a conditional rule or anything. You you just decide to give up donuts entirely. And you go through 30 to 60 days driving past a donut store and you can't even remember why you used to get the cravings. Why does it, why does it even bother you? Then all of a sudden you're at your mom's house. Maybe you moved to a new city, you hadn't gone to your mom's house for a while, and she always used to serve donuts on Sunday morning. And you've got this incredible craving. You're saying, where is this coming from? I don't understand. I thought I fixed this must not work. Well, it turns out that cravings are specific to food stimuli. Because remember, the brain is trying to learn how do I find how do I find bananas? How do I find um, you know calories as easily and efficiently as possible? You didn't fail at extinguishing the craving. You extinguished the donut store. As a food signal for the craving, you didn't extinguish your mom's house as a food signal for the craving, so you have to avoid getting the false impression that you have um, that you've failed when in fact you've succeeded, and th- this happens all the time. Some people get depressed about this and they say, "Well, what if there are forty food signals?" There, there are usually not forty food signals. Um, they're usually, you know, eighty percent of the problem usually surrounds one behavior, maybe fifteen percent of it sounds it surrounds the next one. And then there are all these little stragglers, you know, like what happens on Christmas or, you know, a birthday party or something like that. And for those situations, you can create um special reminders. Like, let's say I know that I have trouble in Christmas with donuts. So I set up a bunch of emails to arrive in my inbox, you know, the week before Christmas telling me what am I going to bring to the party and what am I going to eat beforehand and how am I going to thoroughly nourish myself and what justification is my food master going to say? Like, like maybe it's going to say, oh, you can start your silly diet again tomorrow. And I'll say, wait a minute, the way the brain works by the principle of neuroplasticity, if I have a craving for a donut today and I say I'll just start tomorrow and I get the donut, I will have reinforced both the craving and the thought. So I'll be more likely to crave it tomorrow, and I'll be more likely to think start tomorrow tomorrow so if I'm in a hole I got to stop digging, and use the present moment to be healthy so you could put that all in an email to yourself you have this you kind of think through how to refute the the justification and you have that arrive you know just before you are going to have the problem and then you can you can get through these things you you can you can extinguish yeah. these things. So, yes, yeah. there is a half-life. That was all an answer to the question of, is there a half-life? Yeah. Yes, there yeah. is, but you need to understand how it works. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. So, would you recommend that someone starts this with just one food stimulus? Like, just focus on the donuts or the fast food, rather than uh, saying, like, all the different signals?
0: For for, for a couple of reasons, yes. yes. Okay. So, so, you want to start with one simple rule. Mm-hmm. You want to start with one simple rule because because you want to trigger your identity function because character trumps willpower. So it's, it's a slightly different point. I'll make the bridge in a second. Um, the point you were asking about is, is it better to brainstorm all the stimuli that are associated with a particular craving and make a plan for it? The answer to that is maybe it depends upon how frequently the other stimuli occur and how much of a problem they are. What's most important is that people get success quickly. That They have the experience of success. So I asked them to set a low bar to start with.
1: Hey there, biohackers. We've got an exciting new sponsor to share with you today, New Brew, the groundbreaking non-alcoholic functional beverage that's taking the market by storm. If you're looking for an alternative to alcohol or coffee, or maybe even both, look no further. New Brew has expertly blended precise low doses of kava root, kratom leaf, and caffeine to deliver effects you can actually feel. Kava root, sourced from the Pacific Islands, is known for its relaxing properties. We've talked about this one a lot on the podcast. And it's traditionally used in social rituals for centuries. It's a game changer. And kratom, derived from the leaf of a tropical evergreen tree in Southeast Asia, is traditionally brewed into a tea for enhanced energy and productivity. Each can of new brew contains 125 milligrams of kava, 25 milligrams of kratom, and 30 milligrams of caffeine. And here's the best part. All of Newbrew's active ingredients are third-party lab tested for purity, potency, and overall safety. Now, it comes in three flavors, citrus, berry, and mango, with my personal favorite being mango. I'm actually sipping on it as I speak. <laughs> and whether you need an afternoon boost, a socializing drink, or a productivity kick, Newbrew has you covered. I absolutely love it as my happy hour treat because it gives me a little energy boost and mental clarity, as well as a euphoric feeling almost like I had a cocktail, and it doesn't disrupt my sleep. But please remember to drink responsibly. Each can is meant for those over 21, and it's not recommended to mix it with alcohol or to consume more than two cans in a day. Like coffee or alcohol, New Brew can be habit-forming, so sip slowly and assess your tolerance. And if you're in recovery or living a 100% sober lifestyle, we recommend steering clear of New Brew. So please stay informed and learn about responsible kava and kratom use at drinknewbrew.com. And if you're ready to give it a try, head on over to drinknewbrew.com and use discount code BiohackerBabes to save 25%. Cheers, my friends.
0: What most people do is they live like the. Well, I think it's Longfellow. I forgot the name of the poet. There's a poet who said, uh, he wrote a poem about a little girl. And when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. And that's how most people, that's how most people eat, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 I've already ruined my diet today. So let's just go for it.
0: Let, let's just go to town, right? Yeah. And then they say, oh, my God, I better make up for it. So I'm just going to have dirt and rocks for two weeks and you know, then I'm going to be better. I'll lose the weight really quickly. And they get on this binge restrict cycle and it's a roller coaster and it signals the brain that they live in a feast and famine environment, which means that when food is available, the brain's going to say, I better hoard this now, right? As opposed to showing their brain that there's regular reliable nutrition available day in and day out. That's how you, that's how you kind of damp down the cravings as you're going through. But there's an extension of what you're asking, which is it's better to start slowly it's better to start with something that you could and would do that doesn't seem like a tremendous burden. For example, I knew this trucker who said, you know, I can't stop eating fast food, but I'll tell you what, I i won't go back for seconds. So I'm going to have fast food three times a day, but I won't go back for seconds. And he proceeded from that role to have an experience of success and very slowly kind of adjust his rules and his, his, his diet so that he lost 150 pounds over you know, a couple of years. So what what really happens there? Well, the problem with setting a high bar, I'm only going to eat a thousand calories and I'm going to exercise two hours every day, is that you can do it when you feel all motivated after reading a new diet book over the weekend or, you know, getting on the scale and feeling pissed off at yourself. Um, can I say that on this call? I'm sorry. Yes. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you can do that when your motivation is high, but What's going to happen the first day that you wake up and you don't have your mojo or you're in a really foul mood and your brain is always observing what you do on a regular basis. Character is what we habitually do at the moment of temptation. If your brain observes that you tend to break your commitments repeatedly, then you're going to develop a failure identity and those commitments are not going to mean anything. They're going to stick less and less and less. But if you set a really low bar, you know, I'm just going to, I won't go back for seconds. I'm going to eat fast food, but I won't go back for seconds. Or, you know, I'll always put my gym clothes out before I go to bed at night. Something you can do, even if you're in a foul mood, then over two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, your brain says, I seem to be someone who doesn't go back for seconds. Look at that. I seem to, I seem to be able to be successful. This triggers your identity function because it's easier to eliminate decisions, if you're you're just someone who doesn't go back for seconds, then every time there's an opportunity to go back for seconds, you don't have to agonize about, do I go or don't I go? And for that reason, you're not wearing down your willpower. It's just what you do. This is the same reason if I ask people, could you give up chocolate forever? They'll say, "Uh, I can't do that. If I say, could you become someone who doesn't eat chocolate? They'll go, maybe I could do that. Because they kind of intuitively know that there's this identity function and that that character trumps willpower. So we have people start with one simple rule, one simple rule, something that you could and would do, but it's not too onerous and um, you can do it even if you're in a bad mood.
1: Hey, biohackers, are you feeling overwhelmed this holiday season? We totally get it. November and December's demands like end-of-year tasks, holiday preparations, gift shopping, family get-togethers, it can really be a relentless source of stress, although so much fun at the same time. Well, you can breathe easy because Stress Guardian is here to help you. It's the latest scientific breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the geniuses behind Magnesium Breakthrough. And it's packed with a blend of 14 adaptogenic herbs that help to regulate your stress response naturally, granting you control over your holiday stress. Think resilience here. So with daily use, Stress Guardian becomes your personal shield against seasonal tension, enhancing both your mental and physical well-being. So say goodbye to just surviving this holiday season, thrive instead. To get a head start on your holiday stress, visit stressguardian.com slash biohackerbabes and make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. And BioOptimizers is so confident in their products that they offer a risk-free 365-day money-back guarantee. So go ahead, discover the secret to peace on earth this holiday season.
2: So it's not simply just about building the confidence it's about changing that identity or the narrative around the relationship that's interesting <laughs> i hadn't thought about that like because we we so become our emotions right and our nervous system state so often it's hard to to tear that apart
0: Look, lauren that's very true and what most people do with their eating is collect evidence of failure sure um, right
2: yeah yeah why
0: can't i stop eating what's wrong with me
2: I'm bad, I suck, I knew this was gonna happen.
0: Right, and when you ask a question to yourself, you're actually setting up your brain to go find evidence. So if if you say, why can't I stop eating? Then your brain's gonna find evidence that you can't stop eating. Yeah. If you keep mm-hmm. looking for evidence that you can't stop eating, then before you know it, you're gonna feel like someone who's powerless to stop eating. So we tell people to collect evidence of success instead. How can I improve? What did I do right? I had five cupcakes instead of 15. How did I do that? How did I stop at five? The binge lasted for a day as opposed to a week or a month. Why? How did I stop it at that point? What first and foremost, collect evidence of success. Then you can ask what went wrong and how could I improve? Um, but first and foremost, you want to collect evidence of success. And then you concentrate on building a success identity. Yeah. And, and most people have the mindset that they're powerless and unable to control themselves. Yeah. and that's <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. How do you encourage people or what is kind of the framework for collecting su- successes? Because I think, as you mentioned, we're so wired to look for those failures and it's so much easier to identify pain rather than to identify something that worked because there's not a lot of sensation around that event. So how do we even know like how to look for those wins?
0: Okay. So I, in our methodology, and I discovered this like 20 years ago when I overcame things myself, we we bifurcate the mind. We, we separate constructive versus destructive thoughts about food very carefully. And we do that by making a rule. There are a lot of reasons people are worried about making a rule. We could go over the objections if you want to. But for now, just know that we this is a rules-based system. So if I say I will never have chocolate during the week again, I'll only ever have it on Saturdays, then any thought in my head which suggests that I will ever have chocolate on a Wednesday again. I say that that's my inner food monster. You don't have to call it a monster. You can call it something else. Um, and it's moaning for monster mush. My inner food monster is moaning for mush. Chocolate is mush on a, on a weekday. I don't let monsters tell me what to do. Um, and so you kind of set up a tripwire, which wakes you up when that part of the reptilian brain that wants you to break your rules becomes active. Okay. The the question was how do I encourage people to collect evidence of success? So the reason it's important to understand that is in that framework, you can see that the negativity that ensues after you have a mistake or, or a serious binge, that it's actually motivated by your monster. It's your monster trying to make you feel too weak to resist the next binge. And you will. one of the first places people observe this is that if you just refuse to yell at yourself after a mistake, that doesn't mean we're not going to analyze the mistake and figure out how to do better. But if you refuse to yell at yourself, you'll find it hard to escalate the binge. You'll find it hard to keep overeating if you refuse to yell at yourself. I learned that from Carol Munter. And then I, I talk to people. So that's the first thing I do is I said you're not allowed to yell at yourself after a mistake no matter what. Then I talk to people about committing with perfection, but forgiving yourself with dignity. See, it's the misuse of perfectionism that tends to cause that that self-critical voice to go on and on and on of people to perseverate about guilt and shame. But the idea that they should just pursue progress and not perfection is equally as problematic. Mm. When you look at the psychology of winners, what they do, let's look at Olympic archers, for example. When they're aiming at the target, they can see the arrow going into the target before they let go. They have to commit to the bullseye with perfection, with their heart and soul. They, They have to purge their entire being of doubt and insecurity. They're not thinking, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't, gee, I'll just do the best I can. And when it comes to a food role, when it comes to something that's toxically pleasurable, when you say progress, not perfection, all that really means is I'll try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. Right. Yeah. But, but now yeah. let's, so, so you got to commit with perfection. You got to leverage the energy of perfectionism and commit with it. But now let's look at what happens when they miss the target or they miss the bullseye. Um, first of all, they have a very specifically defined bullseye. They're not, aiming at a fuzzy bullseye, they know exactly where they're aiming, because then if they miss the target, they know by how much and in what direction so that they can make natural adjustments. And if they keep getting up and practicing and aiming at the bullseye with perfection, but then forgiving themselves with dignity while they make the adjustments, um, they have to get better because we are natural learning mechanisms. What prevents people from getting better when they're eating is that they allow their pig to say, that I used to call it a pig a long time ago. <laughs> Millions of readers. I'll go to a bookstore and sometimes they point at me and go, "Pig guy, you're the pig guy," Um, which is not what I want to happen on a first date, but that's another story. Um, Oh no,
2: former pig guy.
0: Former pig guy. Former. Former, Yeah. So they they should remember to say that next time, please. Um, What typically happens is people will say, "Well, progress not perfection," and then they make a mistake, and then they're Inner food monster will say, see, you're not perfect, so you're nothing. You obviously can't do this. You should just shoot the rest of the arrows into the air right? or into the audience or just just give up, shoot them into the ground. Um, and then underneath that is this libidinous squeal, this libidinous smile that says, yippee, 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 let's go do it, because then we get to eat everything that we want to. And so people are using the energy of perfectionism backwards. When they're aiming, they're saying progress, not perfection. When they're missing... Then they adopt perfectionism and say, "Well, if they're not perfect, they're nothing." You want to do just the opposite. You want to aim with perfectionism, but forgive yourself with dignity afterwards. One of the ways we help people with that is we talk about turning guilt into responsibility. So, what what's the actual productive purpose of guilt or shame? We don't have to be frightened of it because it exists for a reason um, to get our attention, just like physical pain does. If you touch a hot stove by accident, you need that pain for a minute so that you know where the hot stove is so that you don't do it again. What you're not supposed to do is put your whole hand down on the stove and say, you know, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well just leave my hand there, right? You're supposed to say, where's the stove? How do I avoid it in the future? Do I need to set a reminder? Do I need to move something around? Turn that guilt into responsibility, and then it's appropriate to let it go any further use of that guilt is really just the pig the pig they I keep saying that the uh, I don't I don't usually do this <laughs> um, it, it's really just the food monster trying to wear you down so you don't have the energy to um resist the next one so your your question lori lauren was how do i help people to let go of the negativity it's by understanding that metaphor separating their thoughts recognizing the having the piercing insight that behind the negativity is the desire for more behind the negativity is is the desire to indulge more it's just a food monster wearing you down and that piercing insight tends to make people feel a little guilty about feeling guilty and it kind of implodes on itself and then the guilt goes away so that's um Mm. that's how we do it
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. I never really thought about like the progress and perfection in that way.
0: That's really, really cool. But because uh, it, so- it sounds, it sounds right—progress, not perfection—but it's only right in certain, in, in yeah, the I guess, athletic context.
1: Right. I, I think it just got catchy, and people kept saying it. But um, I would love to circle back to the idea of creating rules. Like you gave the example of I can only have chocolate on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Now, what if that person then starts using Saturday as the day to eat? Three chocolate bars instead of, well, you know, one square every day. Like, wh- what about that mindset?
0: Well, then you adjust the rule. Okay. And um, autonomy is a, is an essential part of overcoming from overeating. So I don't tell people what to eat. I don't tell them that they should or shouldn't have this or how much they should have. But I'd ask, if you told me you're struggling with chocolate, I would say, um, Renee, what what role do you want chocolate to play in your life? Do you want to have none? Do you want to have some? What would be an amount that you'd feel proud of? What would be an amount that wouldn't interfere with your health and fitness goals? And maybe you'd say, I could have two ounces on the weekends, right? So, so, so and then the rule is I'll never again have more than two ounces of chocolate on a weekend and I'll never again eat it during the week, right? Got it. You, okay. could, you could also adjust things to a guideline. They're not quite as powerful, but sometimes just a reminder is all you need. Um, so there are a lot of ways to go about it. Yeah. And okay. When I use the word never and never again, a lot of people object to that and they won't get started until they feel they're ready to just never again do that. What I explain is that we're presenting this to our food monster as if it were set in stone because the food monster isn't mature enough to consider anything else. It's kind of like when my little niece was two years old. I said, Sarah, you you can never, ever, ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, ever, ever. But I knew that she was going to learn in a couple of years, so I was lying to her. But it was necessary because I didn't want her to have the image of running into the street by herself. It's the same with our food monster. It comes from the reptilian brain; these urges. It's a survival drive gone wrong. It's kind of hijacked by industry, and it's not capable of reasoning beyond that to know that. Well, you're going to experiment with this and change the rule later, and maybe you'll consult with a dietitian or a nutritionist. It it needs to it needs to know no means no. So um I don't want people to get frightened yeah. of the word never again. It's yeah. just um you can change for your food plan whenever you want to with forethought consideration. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. And so it's worth lying to ourselves a little bit in the meantime. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Well why why can't you lie to your food monster? Your food monster has been lying to you for years and all ca- causing all kinds of havoc. Why can't you fight fire with fire, right? Revenge. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Just <laughs> j- just start tomorrow one bite won't hurt. No this is payback time.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. And so, what about the idea of like uh, moderation versus abstaining? Like, do you find certain people just have to be in one camp? Is it food dependent?
0: It, it or- is food dependent, and it's person dependent. Okay. And like, there are some. For example, I can't have chocolate or eat chocolate at all. But I could easily plan out, um, you know, a whole foods vegan pizza if I really wanted to. Um, i I can eat flour if I plan it out. I, I don't really like to do that anymore because it doesn't make me feel good, but i I could do that statistically, I mean, we've worked with about two thousand people and um I find about two out of three people uh, are capable of moderation, slot machine on Saturdays, that kind of thing um and and the third one can't since most people would prefer to have the freedom i I tell them to unless they really know that they can't have any at all to start with moderation and experiment with it. And if you're doing too much damage, then to back off and, um and abstain. Yeah.
2: Okay. Is there usually a conscious awareness about whether or not you're good in moderation or not? Will people just upfront be like, this is me or you have to kind of do some detective work.
0: You need to do a little detective work. There's an unconscious awareness. So, okay. If you imagined two different rules for yourself, let's say you were struggling with chocolate and I'll say, well, one rule is I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturdays and no more than two ounces. And the other one is I'll never eat chocolate again. Then I'd ask you to take a deep breath and I'd project you into the future where you're down the road. And I'd have you imagine the future two different times. One, if you tried to adopt the never again rule, and one, if you tried to adopt the um, only on Saturdays rule. And I'd ask you to walk me through a day in your future, not just what do you weigh, but what does it feel like? What's your energy level? Are you thinking about food all the time? Like what level of food obsession are you experiencing? What it, what are you, like, how are your relationships? How is your um, how's your presence of mind? Are you enjoying your kids and your parents and your dogs? And, and I'd have them paint me a very full picture in both scenarios. If both of those scenarios are the same, then, I find that it's usually better for the person to try the moderation because they unconsciously believe that they can do it. If the moderation turns out to be much worse or even just a little bit worse, they might want to consider abstaining. And I usually ask them what their conclusion is. I don't tell them what what my mm-hmm. conclusion is, yeah, okay yeah. okay,
1: And yeah, more powerful. and what about stress eating? Like when it's you know, hopefully you have the rules, you have these things figured out ahead of time. but, you get off a really stressful call with someone and you go to the kitchen. In the moment, what do we do?
0: So originally, I recovered by fixing my thinking about food. I removed all those justifications. And I'm, I'm a person with um like a strong superego. I, I, you know, I was brought up Jewish and I have a lot of neurotic guilt. And if I feel like I did something wrong then it's just torture for me. So if I don't have a justification for doing something, I just would feel too horribly guilty. And so I I wouldn't do it. So largely for me, I did that. When I work with all these people, I found that we got really good at fixing their thinking really quickly. And we get like an 89.4% reduction in overeating in the first month. It drops down at about the six month mark because people stop doing some of the techniques. And, I tried to figure out why it was dropping down. Why did people stop doing the techniques? And inevitably, it all centered around this reaction I would call the screw it, just do it reaction. Um, like, yeah, I know why this is wrong. None of the justifications work for me anymore. But oh, what the hell, right? And I'm going to do it. It turns out that the reptilian brain has the ability to push the rational brain out of the way if it perceives a very scarce opportunity for resources or an emergency. doesn't matter whether it's a true emergency or not. And when I started investigating what was behind the screw it, just do it response, it was inevitably what psychologists would call organismic distress. So it could be that you just got off of a phone call and there were competing You know, competing interests and, you know, decisions to be made. And you're just not sure what to do. And you're just feeling this level of distress. It could be that you skipped a meal and you're overly hungry or you didn't sleep well last night or you didn't have enough, you know, you're, you're dehydrated or you've got too many decisions coming through you over the course of the day. So, so it turns out that fixing your thinking all by itself is necessary, but not sufficient to really stop overeating to really defeat everything you actually do have to engage in more self-regulation um and so the most important one is the regular reliable nutrition but you also kind of need to look at your sleep and your um your socialization people start to get into a state of organismic distress when they um when they feel isolated too much that doesn't mean you have to be a social butterfly, but you have to feel like you have a tribe. You, know, you have to look at all these different areas and work on that. Some easy ways to do that is to take five minutes twice a day and step out of the rat race. Most of us are like glued to our computer screens and our phones, making decisions all day long. Take five decision-free minutes twice a day, even if you have to lock yourself in the bathroom without your phone. Five decision-free minutes twice a day. It makes a really big difference because it that's when our brains start to restore our willpower. And that's when things start to seem less overwhelming. Um, also, there are breathing techniques that can that that can take you out of organismic distress. What what organismic distress really is is the body telling the brain we need something. You better do something quick. We need something, right?
1: Mm-hmm. This is
0: why you get the just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt experience. And it turns out that when you're having that experience of an urgent need to do something that, that your, your nervous system has activated the sympathetic part of the system. And the sympathetic nervous system is the part that is responsible for our survival. If you're running from a hungry bear or you're trying to um, you know, fight off a predator or uh, seize a unusual opportunity, that's your your sympathetic nervous system getting you all revved up and ready to go there's the opposite system that calms us down and says it's okay to breathe and rest and digest. Now, it turns out that you can activate the parasympathetic system, the rest and digest system, with your breath, because if there really were a hungry bear chasing you, you'd have to be breathing really fast and short, right? But if you breathe in for shorter than your breathe out, we call them 7-11 breaths, got that from Laurie Hemant, breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11. Do that three or four times and your body's going to chill. It's going to say, there's no hungry bear chasing us. Obviously, there's no hungry bear chasing us because we're taking a long time to breathe out and not not as long to breathe in. And it takes you from the state of urgent doing, we need something, to kind of relaxed being. Um, I first learned this in yoga. I, I I once had lunch with a woman who, um, she when she found out what I did for a living, she said, "Oh well, I used to binge every night until I started doing twenty minutes of yoga at night." And it turned out it was the breathing in the yoga at the end that was really helping her. So, um, well, yeah. So, so you, c-
2: mm-hmm. yeah. I'd never heard of the seven eleven. We use a lot of like the four seven eight or like the physiological side to activate that sympathetic. I like 7 Eleven, but 7-11. it reminds me of the store 7 Eleven. Yeah. Where all, the, where all the treats are.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, if you if you took more 7 Eleven breaths when you went into 7 Eleven, you probably wouldn't do as much damage when you went That's into
2: the strategy. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious with all these techniques, how much would you put that under the category of like redirecting or strengthening willpower versus like some of these other physiological root drivers, like Blood sugar optimization, or gut health, or like default right. load network being too—it's
0: redirect, redirecting willpower, but it's actually also eliminating the need for willpower. Okay, we're told in our culture to eat well ninety percent of the time and indulge ten percent of the time, which is all well and good, but how do you know which is the ninety percent and which is the ten percent? So if you have the idea, I'm just going to eat well 90% and indulge 10% of the time, every time you're in front of a donut or a chocolate bar, you have to decide is this part of the 10% or not. Each one of those decisions wears down your willpower. If you say I'll only ever have donuts on Saturday mornings and no more than two, you've made all your donut decisions already and you don't have to use willpower. You just become a person who doesn't eat donuts during the week. That's why I say character trumps willpower. So so we're trying to inventory our difficult food situations. We're trying to extinguish the cravings uh, in the ways that we talked about before, and that eliminates the extraordinary need for willpower that most people experience on a day-to-day basis by by leveraging the power of character and identity. But but I I do I mean obviously I focus more on the psychological side. Um, you know, that then the yeah. regula- regulation of blood sugar and hormones and everything like that. But, but all that stuff is That's important too. Huge yeah.
2: piece of the puzzle. I'm curious, yeah. you as a psychologist, do you get into any like internal family systems, like understanding these kind of board members that have different voices in our heads?
0: Um, I find that stuff fascinating. And what I find is that when people stop overeating, they're then able to explore that kind of thing. But I,
2: not as a first that- measure.
0: Not as the first measure, and I tell them to think of that as a goal separate and apart from overcoming overeating. The danger is people think I have to work out my internal family traumas before I can stop overeating, and that's what happened to me. I, I'm a compassionate psychologist from a very soulful family of 17 psychotherapists, and I, I spent 20 years trying to, you know, analyze myself and and cry myself thin. Um, and it just didn't work. I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter every time. And so I've, I've got a real, I've got a real sensitivity to very practical methods and understanding the science behind overcoming overeating. And remember, I work for the food industry, right? So those were external forces that had nothing to do with the fact that my mama dropped me in my head or her mama dropped her on, on her head. You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's not that I, Disdain that kind of stuff. I think it's fascinating, and I think there's a lot of growth that occurs there. But um, it, it's not where I focus. I, I, I can get yeah. people to stop overeating fast if the, if they'll do what I tell them to do. I can, I can get them to stop overeating fast. I, I could, I could probably cure them of what ails them from their psychological trauma over the course of a couple of years, and in some ways that would be more meaningful. But I would rather you were thin and healthy and still had a little psychological trauma and dealt with someone else about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you want to give them
2: the immediate relief that they deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and then your feelings are more accessible once you do that. And so their -hmm. therapist will usually call me and thank me um, for for putting this together. Well, we're putting out
2: the fire, but in some ways we are doing some IFS, right? Like just telling the firefighter they can take a, take a seat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's really a holistic approach. I think, right?
0: I think. I think so.
1: Yeah. I think yeah.
0: so. It's it's what worked for me because I was obsessed with it, and you know, I yeah. seem to be able to teach each other people now. So it's the most meaningful thing yeah. I've ever done. I, I love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You he found you found your calling. Well, thank you. This has been super fascinating. A lot of food for thought, even for myself personally. Oh,
2: yeah. good. So I'm curious, how do people access this? What does it look like to go through this? program. What can the, people expect? The
0: first step would be to go to the website, which is at defeatyourcravings.com. Defeatyourcravings.com. Click the big blue button for the free reader bonuses. Um, sign up for those, and you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We do have other formats, but there's a traditional traditional charge for those. And you'll get a couple of other things. I know this there's a lot of information and it sounds a little abstract and weird. It really helps to listen to me coach people through full sessions so you can see how it really works in practice. So I recorded a bunch of them and it's a very compassionate process. You can hear people going from feeling overwhelmed and confused and helpless about food to feeling, you know, powerful and confident and optimistic about it. And I wear a diet agnostic program. So you know what? You can, you can do this on. It doesn't matter what diet you're following whether it's ketogenic or whole foods or you know vegetarian or point counting or calorie counting it it doesn't really matter as long as you're not starving yourself as long as you're getting enough nutrition and so I I created a bunch of food plan starter templates to show you the kinds of rules that might be available to you depending upon what your dietary philosophy is um and a bunch of other good stuff it's it's all at defeatyourcravings.com uh click the big blue button once you do that you'll be led to our coaching programs and um you know other downloads my own podcast all that kind of thing but um d- defeatyourcravings.com defeatyourcravings.com
1: yeah perfect thank mm-hmm. you for all the resources thank yeah. you
0: for having me yeah yeah
1: well glenn before we let you run one final question for you if you can leave our audience with a piece of advice something they could start doing today to optimize their health
0: oh pick one simple rule pick 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 one simple rule. Other examples might be, I always put my fork down between bites. I never eat in front of a screen. I will never eat after 8 p.m. again when I'm home. Um, Usually, you need to make an exception for that if you're out to eat or something. Um, But pick, pick, and these are just examples. Don't let me dictate it. It should be one simple thing that you could and would do. It doesn't feel too onerous, but it would make a difference, and it would make you really know that the ship was heading in the right direction. What, what can you actually win at? Even if you don't lose weight immediately, the only caveat is if your doctor says you have to lose weight immediately, then I I can't override that. But um, in terms of overcoming your cravings, this is the best thing that you can do is one, one simple rule. Mm -hmm. And remember, like Jim Rohn said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And like Peter McWilliams said, you can't have, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. So as you're choosing these disciplines, you're choosing what you really want. um, And there'll be other things that you don't have. Don't focus on the fear of missing out. Focus on the joy of missing out. Focus on what you're going to feel like to have control and accomplish your health and fitness goals and feel like the master of your own fate as opposed to a slave to your impulses. So, yeah.
2: I'm just curious if you're willing to share, do you have one rule that you're employing at the moment?
0: Oh, I, I, I eat what grows. I eat with, I eat where it grows. I don't eat grains. That That's my primary role. I, now this is after almost 20 years, but that, that's my primary role. I, I eat what grows.
1: Yeah. like that. I
0: love that. Which means think- that things with, things with labels on it and, you know, it, it's exceptionally rare that I would do that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Eat real yeah. food.
0: I eat, I eat real food. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 good kind of, real food. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of wish there would be less of an Argument in society about you know plant based versus carnivore, and I, w- I wish there would be more emphasis on getting rid of all the processed stuff because that's that, that's where the demons really are. So,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's well, a whole other war fighting the really? the food industry, yeah, marketing and labeling. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, so, but we're seven, in the same camp eating real food.
0: Seven trillion dollars in the food industry as opposed to I think four point six billion dollars, like literally twenty times smaller of fruit and vegetables. So, yeah, you're mm. doing Yeah. Mm. Wow. There's no money. There's there's no money in selling fruit and vegetables.
2: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. A lot against us.
0: Yeah. But all but right. you you can you can you can make a very significant dent with one simple rule. You you can and you can slowly work your way out of all the cravings and find a peaceful relationship with food that you want that you define um if you use these techniques and tools um and it's all free to start, so I suggest you go take me up on that.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Well, yes, that resonates a lot. Yeah. I le- I really appreciate rules. I've I've navigated my life with rules that feel empowering and not too defeating. So. Yeah. Same. Like but,
0: Same. people are frightened of rules because they're frightened of the rebel inside of them. They say, "The moment you make a rule, I want to break it." And I'll say, "Of course you do. That's the whole point." There's a part of you that wants to. Keep eating donuts, and there's a part of you that wants to regulate it. And the point is to draw that line and figure out how to win the battle with the with the rebel. I don't want to be a slave to my emotions and impulses. I want to make my important food decisions with my intellect, not not based on whim and emotion and and impulse. And feeling rebellious is just another feeling, just like feeling angry or upset or anxious. And I don't want my feelings to control what I eat. I want me to control what I eat. So I'm not scared of rules. I'm not scared of them. And I can change them if I want to. So yeah, Yeah. like we talked about before.
2: That's so empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Great perspective. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom. And I can feel like you've lived this and worked through it. And that's so meaningful for people
0: and. I speak a little quickly because there's a lot of important information, and I'm all excited about making sure people know about it. Um,
1: We understand that. I know when we get excited, (laughs) like, (laughs) oh gosh. I feel like we crammed crammed a lot into an episode. I know you could talk for hours about this, but thank you. My media
0: coach is always saying, smaller sound bites, calm down. Um, But I can't. (laughs) So I can't. Okay.
1: (laughs) Got to let it flow. Okay. This was delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're so grateful to have you here. Thank you. Yes. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. We will see you next time.
2: Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.